Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Fredrik Wikholm with me. Welcome to my podcast, Fredrik. Tack, Vesna. I'm very happy to be here. It's an exciting uh, hour ahead of us. Fredrik lives in New York and is the co-founder of several companies and initiatives creating climate-positive businesses. One is Ragbag, a company making recycled bags for a fair and clean world. And another one is the uh, sustainability-focused clothing brand, Uniforms for the Dedicated. Fredrik is also the founder of the Dedicated Institute, which is a global organization for smart co-creation between industry, academia and research. He also speaks internationally on the impact of businesses and how to innovate and create solutions to solve urgent social and ecological problems. So, Fredrik, let's talk about this, let's call it the impact age. You've recently spoken at the Singularity University about the future of entrepreneurship. What was your message there and what was actually the most interesting question you got there? Starting off at Singularity University, I think first and foremost, they have within a very short period of time really managed to establish themselves as rather the powerhouse as it pertains to modern universities and modern education and maybe tailoring more towards the actual needs of our society and those future social leaders and entrepreneurial leaders that enter through their doors. I was there speaking to their first ever class focused on global problems. So it's 90 amazing entrepreneurs from 48 nations doing their summer course. I was there with Stockholm Resilience Center, which is one of the world's greatest and biggest environmental science centers. And I was there sort of as a bridge. I would argue I'm quite good at pinpointing how to utilize science and research in business, both how to build them and how to scale them and what we're actually addressing when we're building business. So that was one of the core aspects of being there. How do we actually turn the science and the focus often that comes out of science on defining problems into usable treasure maps or guides for how Mm. to build solutions and therefore build social relevance in your business. So that was sort of my umbrella conversation. But And reality is that when I was there, I was listening, so much of the focus was on how to make the big bucks and uh, exponential technologies as the solution. So I think my core focus, I had written my talk and I came there and I listened for a day and then I sort of had to rip half of all the pages out and sort of restart and take it back to where I come from, which is behavioral science, and reel it in a bit and say, you know what, let's let's drop the conversation on money and technology for a bit and let's focus on human nature. Let's focus on what connects us all, what drives us, why we're here, how we come this far and how we connect that to how we develop business. So it really became a conversation on human needs and drives Mm. in how we build our business reasoning up from that place more so than finding an exponential technology and trying to put it to good use. Fundamentally I believe that it is not the exponential technologies in and of itself 
that is going to determine the road for 21st century, whether it's life at large on this planet or entrepreneurial success stories. But instead, it is the human thinking and the human actions behind it and the expansion thereof that is going to determine where we will be able to take ourselves. And I think too often that is forgotten. There's too often a conversation that dives straight into technology instead of talking about human and our human interactions first. So that was sort of the key talking point. And, and what was the most important question or the most thought-provoking question? I think it was less a question. It was more how the room became a sponge, how drastically needed this was. This was one of the most impressive rooms I've ever been in, a beautiful set of people. And they needed it. They just fundamentally needed a little bit of a, a core deepening to why we're in this in the first place mm. and reconnecting to us as human beings and sort of our social nature of, you know, there is this framework of social entrepreneurship. I despise that framework. Reality is that all entrepreneurship is social. We're social beings. That's mm. our human nature. So everything that we do has a social imprint and a social impact. Mm. It's just a question of if it's amazing or if it's horrible or if it's somewhere on that scale. So it was also a conversation around that. It's easy that even the founding of a company, which is a pretty big commitment for any human being, and especially if you want to root it as in this case in solving global problems, even in such a space, it's easy to make it cognitive gymnastics, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's easy that it's just thinking your way through it and the desire to get it. Mm -hmm. And when you start from that space of reasoning, mm -hmm. you often dive into technologies and you start in the reasoning of what can I do with the current progress of AI, for instance, and reason from there and dive into problems as opposed to reasoning from a way deeper place of what are the most pressing issues that we actually have and what does that matter to me, mm. right? And then build your reasoning up from there because you're going to build a way higher, first and foremost, you're going to have a way deeper anchoring in your business. It's way more long lasting and way more relevant to the broader social context that is your customer base. But it also is going to provide you with a deeper sense of meaning to why you do what you do, which obviously facilitates higher resilience through the process of establishing something. Mm. So it was, it, mm. you know, it might sound fluffy, but it's really about going back to core drivers and internal purpose in many ways. Mm. So yeah, it was important to talk about it. It's, you know, when you've been blasted in a, in a very California sort of Silicon Valley manner of, you know, with the latest technologies and so forth, you, that's, that's often where you start your reasoning. Yeah. So this will not be the last time you're there, I guess. That, that we will see. <laughs> it's going to be up to them. <laughs> but you work as an entrepreneur in this um, intersection between environmental science, tech, evolution, and also disruptive entrepreneurship. So what are the pros and cons of being in that very spot? Mm -hmm. Well, the cons, I would say, is that you have to sort of 
to use a surf term, duck dive, away from a lot of uh, naysayers or, or a lot of people that is often fear-filled, right? We stand at a pretty interesting time and place. If you look at society in a broader scale, there's a lot of, I see it as tectonical shifts, right? So there's a lot of transformation going on in society right now. People speak about the digital transformation and so forth, but it's a lot more. We're coming to the destabilizing end of political structures as we see it, as something new will come along and grow through it. We see the um, overtaking of the biggest and sort of most central economic industry we've had through oil. You know, we're moving from oil, coal, gas to wind, water, and ocean. And that in and of itself put everything in a new light. Who holds the power? Why do they hold the power? We're seeing grand shifts in financial markets and so on. So there's, and a rise in awareness through a more interconnected network society. So I think that for many, the grounds are shaking right now. Like what has been kind of the same in quite a stable time since the 60s, 70s is now destabilizing as we're sort of erupting into a into new form of organizing ourselves as society. Mm. And in that, it, there's a lot of fear, right? So many times if you're, you're starting a conversation on like, where do we go next? in this intersection, you often face such a big conversation that it's easy for people to check out, you know? So that, I would say that is on the one hand, that is, that is a con. I would say another con is that for the most of us, I experienced that it's, people find it challenging to build vision and to really build a tangible vision of where to go when where to go really demands a lot of reimagination. It's like almost like the, the, the framework is too wide for people. So that makes it hard to, to set sort of a, a vision and a mission and a clear enough set of, of, of goals, which in and of itself makes it difficult to create a tangible roadmap for uh, many people. So, and then the, the pros in that is that we have, first and foremost, it drives me incredibly. Like I, I, at the end of the day, I think one of the core deepest natures or of humanity in our DNA is to overcome challenge together, right? So to really take on some fantastically huge challenges and try to accomplish figuring out the solutions and establishing the solutions together with brilliant people that are way smarter than me, where I really have to run to keep up, that makes me grow. And I, I, I said that that is one of the core aspects. Then I also think that fundamentally, we have a pretty slim window right now as life on this planet. We have a pretty slim window, although some pretty good opportunity to build a way more thriving collective society that's way more in harmony with, with our planet and our planetary opportunities and sort of the ecological boundaries that we, that we actually have to deal with. So within that intersection, we can actually generate the solutions that we do need, but we need that intersection. We need to anchor in science. We need to really carefully craft solutions based on real, real problems. We need to allow ourselves to venture in our visionary leadership in ways uh, that are uncomfortable. And based on that, we can, we can sort of 
harness the power of exponential technology, both ecological technologies like nature's technology through biomimicry and then also our sort of human-made technologies. So mm. I don't know if there's a pros and cons, but that that is at least a, a little bit of an assessment of why be in that intersection. But a lot of people are scared, as you said, about this, uh, you know, change is never going to be faster than it is, people say, and so on. So what is and should remain the same? What should remain constant? Because we also, human beings, need to have some sense of safety and something being constant in our lives, right? And as we have that need, then we might work against any change because we don't see anything that is still. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What advice or what, what, you know, what reflection do you have on that? I think that's an exceptional question. And uh, it's interesting because as I perceive it, for the past couple of hundreds of years, and especially with the rise of humanism and then individualism, and out of that the whole industrial bloom and, and a severe capitalistic rise, we have sort of externalized the factors of stability, right? So we live in a society where we look at what are our foundations? What are our safety pillars? Well, it's how we live. It's the products that we own. It's our bank accounts. It's the roles that we have at work, or at least the titles. It's so much of the um, aspects that actually do change and will change faster and faster and faster, not because they change, but because we develop new things, new offerings to ourself. Mm. new tools because they are tools mm. so i think that we have gotten lost a little bit in that sense in what truly has been a constant for a very long time which is human nature you know our cultures develop you know our cultures develop fast and within the cultures our artifacts develop fast you know, a mere hundred years ago, we really established a combustion engine and we see it as uh, like the traditional car as the symbol of ownership and capitalism. And like it's been it's, it's been a vessel for industrial growth. And now a hundred years later, we see that disappearing completely for the rise of something new through both the combination of electrical and autonomous uh, transportation. Next cycle of what will be next will be substantially shorter. Right. So we can't look at external artifacts as the foundations of stability, but instead we have to go within ourselves and we have to go within our relationships between each other. Stability is belonging. Right. Humans are driven fundamentally by three major drivers, apart from the like the core you know, if, if you look at the staircase of needs, you have the fundamentals of like mm. protection, food, water, and, and well, safety overall. But then on top of that, we have what is known as self-determination theory, right, in, in behavioral science. So we have three main drivers. We have autonomy, mm. you know, the space to actually take our own constructive decisions for how we want to live our lives and how we want to create meaning in our lives. We have um, competency or mastery as the... Um, space to become really really good at something you really really love and then you have relatedness or belonging right to be able to contribute to a larger context than just self i and my own wallet mm. and that is a really really core 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 driver in our actual nature mm. so i would say that 
as we develop technology and new ways of building houses, new ways of saving money, new ways of maybe living without money, you know, whatever it might be, becoming global citizens, the global empire, mm. potentially restructuring what nation borders mean and if they should even be there, then we need to go back to our core nature of belonging, our communities, our sense of safety within, the ability to observe oneself. So really, we're becoming a network society because we are a network, mm. right? The quality of our lives are determined by the quality of our relationships. Mm. And that's the foundation of the safety that we're longing for, but mm. too few are actually guided by. And that logic works also for companies. Totally. If you have a strong relationship there, you have a strong momentum. You have a, 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 a trust. Yeah, a large portion of safety. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Trust, trust your allies, trust your people around you, mm. and you will be ready to face challenge, discomfort, and celebrate the overcoming. Mm. What is it that your companies uh, and what you do promise? Um, this has been a little bit of a revolution of insight through my now 12 years as an entrepreneur. It started with uniforms for dedicated and, and just an insight that the better we do as a clothing company the worse the conditions of our planet gets mm. so more clothing bigger holes in our planet that couldn't work so we had to sort of turn our own reasoning on our heads and decided that either we disappear cease to exist as a company and as a product or we commit to something else and that something else was to go circular and become good at sustainability. So that was that promise, and that is a continued promise by the, the founders and the owners that still run it. I still own, I'm not active. The rag bag was an extension of that, which was what is excess capacity within the textile, clothing, fashion industries that are completely useless today, but that can really, really be utilized in a good way? Well, it's the shopping bag. So what if the shopping bag becomes a recycle tool? Mm -hmm. um, so that was that commitment. But after that, I think, at least for me, I started asking substantially deeper questions. What is actually my own commitment and my own promise to myself and society at large. And that really became an exploration of human capacity, my own human capacity. And that ended up being, it boiled down to one question that we then found a dedicated institute on, which was, what happens if everything that we do is climate positive? That has then grown out to being mm. climate and socially positive, right? That every action that we take, every decision that we take, every business model that we develop or help someone else develop, shall reinforce the core frame of our planet and reinforce society at large and we have a contribution to life, really. And that is the commitment of, of Dedicated Institute today. Out of that, out of Dedicated Institute as an umbrella for doing a lot of things which can range from consulting for larger corporations, need to sort of transform to be honest, all the way to, to what we're doing now, for instance, with, with, in partnership with Stockholm Resilience Center and, and, and the Swedish Institute, which is to build an educational program for the sort of future social leaders, but social leaders that run businesses or any form of entity that reinforce society. So right now we have the opportunity to sort of bring our entrepreneurial perspective and our models into the mix together with Stockholm Resilience Center to bring an immense knowledge on our planetary 
boundaries and our planetary opportunities, right? And then the facilitation of all of this to happen from the Swedish government through the Swedish Institute. So yeah. the promise in that case, when we're looking at, at education, which is a big part of what we do with, with Dedicated Institute, is to provide society with more leaders, uh, leaders that are ready to sort of transform society into a higher state of, of thriving and a, and, a, and a more sort of harmonious relationship with our planet and the systems that provide everything that we need, right? So moving from an industrial era to an era where we're just more integrated with, with our planet. There are other promises where, you know, we're, we're, I've just finished the bulk writing of a book on the future of economy providing the world with new reasoning, building business or just being a consumer at times or just a citizen from a place of our caring nature mm -hmm. and building business reasoning from our caring nature and the fact that we're social beings and how do you build business from being of social contribution because if you're having a high level of social contribution in what you do as a business you generate high social relevance because at the end of the day if you solve really really urgent problems for a lot of people you matter and if you matter your business will grow mm. right so okay. at the end of the day I, I think our existence is to enable a reintegration of business in society as a, a as an entity that actually contributes to to society and to our planet, not dig holes in it, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's our our, our promises. <laughs> and and um, maybe a kind of simplistic comment, but still, the companies who are let's say stuck in the quarterly report, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I mean they have to deliver results, mm -hmm. and sometimes being long-term in mm. a sustainable way mm. will decrease their 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 profits mm -hmm. short-term but mm -hmm. still what do you say to the to those mm -hmm. leaders mm -hmm. well uh, uh, mm, I, I think i need to approach because that's again is a very good question it's a very both simple and complex uh, reality right so the simple reality is this if we continue on trajectory, the trajectory that's been, especially for the past 50 years, <laughs> reality is that there won't be much of a market left for those corporations, one. So it would be wise to rethink, no matter if that, you know, your, your stock takes a hit. That is one aspect of it. Like we, we are, we are in a trajectory where everybody needs to look at like, what is our actual effect on our surroundings? period mm. but then and if you don't what you lose market share because people will not choose you as a deliver, yeah I, I, deliverer of service or products is yeah that, is i think it? yeah basically as we will drop so this is how i look at it we now have about a 10-year window about a decade to define the route we're going to get on so that there is this you could always almost look at it as we're at the juncture right now as and when i say we i'm actually i'm it might sound preposterous but i'm really talking about humanity at, at this level so we can either sort of continue on a road of dystopia or refocus towards utopia right and in many ways we are like we if you if you look at the uh, energy transformation right now we have a 
it, it takes on average day in linear thinking 5.4 years to double the direct energy in the world as it pertains to renewable energy, right? Which that in and of itself on a linear trajectory would, would lead us to 100% renewable energy globally by 2040. I understand that there's many hurdles, political hurdles, if not to that. But nonetheless, that's the trajectory. That's a very exciting trajectory, right? That is truly towards utopia. And I really believe that we need utopic perspectives. We see a huge shift in the transportation markets. What was previously a, a car that you owned and you drove, just you, is at the very high pace becoming a service, right? And an electrical service soon an autonomous service. So we're seeing huge shifts of, of gigantic markets. So one is that companies will need to shift anyways, because that level of disruption is coming, right? But my other point, what I want to, when I, when I said you, there won't be any markets, um, we will also face some serious setbacks over the coming decades. Like there will be more severe climate effects, right? We, we see it, Right now, we see it in Texas, for instance, and in Houston, and the huge floods again. We see it uh, when we look at the, like the, the death of the Baltic Sea here, or the, or, or the Great Barrier Reef. So a lot of ecosystems, resources, and services that we're taking for granted are at dire effects. And, and, and those ecosystems are really providing the resources for all these corporations. So when they run out of resources or, you know, start facing resource scarcity, which is a, a, a major component to why we're seeing shifts in textile now, for instance, <laughs> they're not only losing resources, but they're also facing a point in time where their customers fall further down on the staircase of needs, right? Mm. If you're facing urgent problems, you're not going to look to companies that provide hygiene factors, it's just not. You're gonna to look to those entities on this planet that provides feasible solutions to what you experience as problems today. Mm -hmm. If you look at a political perspective, you can see that even in its simplest forms, if you look at Trumpism, for a lot of people, that was a solution, right? I don't agree with the analysis. I don't think that he's gonna solve anything for those people who voted for him, but they went there. And these were even, to some extent, people that went ahead and, and voted for Obama last, you know, four years ago or eight years ago, because people often vote for change or those that say, I'll help you with whatever problems you're facing. So I, I think that all sort of entities on our global markets need to be relevant in people's lives and relevant you are by solving big problems. Then if which, we... Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but which companies do you think you know, kind of Fortune 500 types of companies, mm -hmm. do you think will not even be here in, in like five years only that we maybe take for granted today? I think five years, five years is a tight window. So I would say that those are probably or more service oriented industries. So I, I'd say that the financial sector is really in for a really interesting time, right? So big uh, credit institutes and, and, and banks, you know, uh, and that I, I want to speak on one of my perspectives on solution when it comes to the stock exchange, especially when it comes to financial institutions. I think that's in for a really, really tough ride. Um, what do you see in front of you? 
in, you I know, know it's a big question. Yeah, it's a big uh, question. I, I think that a combination of these, many of the corporations that are large players today, dehumanize themselves in, in the relationship with their customer, which means that the customer have very little dedication or commitment to the individual mm. corporation. Let's take a bank, for instance. Say we take uh, Capital One in, in the US or HSBC mm. or something. You know, the more you, you know, they are internally cutting down costs, cutting down costs, cutting down costs, and pushing in digitization and automatization, right? It makes sense because they're competing with new solutions that have, are rooted in a way more efficient model in the first place. Mm -hmm. What they do then is that they, they lose a little bit of the, the leverage they actually had, which is customer loyalty, mm -hmm. you know? Where are the human connection between a company and its customer? If that ceases to exist and you stand in an old business model where you're clumsy, you kind of alienate your customer. So that's one part that makes it easier for customers to, to just leave. Another part is obviously blockchain and Bitcoin and Ethereum, new ways of distributing financial flows overall. That's a big part as well. And I think like crowd lending, crowdfunding, there's, there's many aspects going to grow tremendously, mm. right? We as corporations, new corporations, need less money to do more. Right, so the sort of the mm. business to business markets might shrink a bit. Stagnated big organizations where, and this is interesting because I've been in many corporations where you have top leadership saying repeatedly, people are scared of change, people are scared of change, people are scared of change. First and foremost, drop the word change and talk about development instead because mm -hmm. life is development, right? There's, there's change all the time. So that's a continuous developmental curve instead. So sort of change language a bit, I think. But then also many people that actually meet the work in these larger corporations are actually quite curious and quite ready because they don't necessarily, you know, many people are up for a bit of, a, of an adventure, right? Mm. It's often in the top management where people are scared don't want to lose your bonuses, you don't, you know, you're close to retirement and so forth. So I think it's actually top, top management in many ways that are killing off their own corporations, not the people within them. Mm. So a, a quick shift in who is actually running the companies would potentially at least lessen the risk of, of the old dragons dying. Mm. I want to go back to the stock market thing. So basically how we assess the strength in a corporation and therefore how the, the, the sort of the, the flow of, of, of stock value and market value is based on this idea of, of shareholder maximization, right? Shareholder maximization just says that our job as a corporation on the stock exchange is to provide our shareholders with the maximum amount of value. Don't need to go back that long in time to start seeing a bit more of a nuanced assessment of what that actually means. Obviously, financial returns have always been central, but it's only in the past 30 years that, that, that corporate leadership kind of just trimmed down the complexity of their job to make it just mean short-term financial returns and maximization of it. If you look at, I mean, most, a huge part of the people that actually own something in some companies, if they were actually asked, what is a value maximization in your life? The answer is probably a bit more nuanced and broader than just money. Mm 
that's at least my experience for myself, right? Absolutely. And in, in many, uh, many of the larger financial flows and investments that happen in the world are institutional investments, right? There's bizarre amounts of trillions of dollars in just retirement funds, right? Global retirement funds. And those retirement funds are the hard-earned and saved money of ordinary folks, right? Our grandparents, our parents, ourselves. Maybe it is so that we care about what happens to our surroundings, what happened to our families, like that our grandchildren have an opportunity to live in the abundance that we've lived in, or that, that our sons and daughters get to get a part of the venture cap cake that so often are directed towards white men, for instance. So I think that we, we need to understand that we as private investors and we as savers, retirement savers, collectively have a ton of power, a ton of power, even over the stock exchange. So, you know, the most efficient change is probably organization between humans. If, if, if 10 million people that have their money in, in, in certain retirement funds say, you know what, I'm not down with this thing about just maximizing financial returns. We demand more of you. We actually demand more of you. You need to provide us with high financial value whilst also bettering the odds of a healthy ecological situation and the inclusion of all people, for instance. Mm. There's a lot of power in, in people. We just got to get better at organizing ourselves. Mm. And also, I mean, especially the finance industry, uh, we all know that we feel so small when we have anything to do with them because they always use their power of knowledge uh, you know, whatever is happening behind the scenes that you don't know or you don't have the capacity to understand. It's, you know, they're, they're playing their own game, so to say. So you never know if really they take it so seriously to give you the maximum financial value. First, uh, their pockets, then yours, maybe. Yeah. So there is, I think, a huge need for that sector to transform into something better uh, overall because the, they haven't earned the trust and there is a reason for that. Yeah. I, I just want to add to what you just said. I think also that the, the, the feeling small is because we step in small. If you step in as a, as a singular individual or as a family, mm. that's a pretty small entity or a small player in a big financial yeah. system. Yeah. But if you mobilized, mm. if you're people coming in together saying, you know what, mm. we're customers of this bank for the past 10, 20, 30 years, we're 10,000 people that are speaking to you now. Mm. That, that's a Facebook group away, mm. really. Mm. All of a sudden, the bank will listen. That's true. Mm -hmm. Good idea. I know that you are right now uh, working on something that will turn the industry of textile on its head. Can you reveal something at this stage? I would love to reveal a lot more <laughs> than what I can. I can say like this. So we're doing a very interesting project where so the textile industry is quite weak in the area of innovation good at creativity but weak in innovation right so there's few innovation pipelines and labs and so forth but and and especially in the field of resource innovation that far back in the supply chain rather few things are happening mm -hmm. we're still looking at the same sort of fossil based synthetic fibers you know the residue from from diesel and gasoline that's what becomes our synthetic fibers, our nylons and polyesters and so on. Then you have the cotton fields and they can't really hold uh, the growth and the demand either. 
apart from the, the two suck for the environment. Those are the major components. 63% of all fibers in the world are synthetic. Look at that from that perspective and then have a consideration that oil, diesel, gasoline disappearing. Mm. And you can sort of figure out that that industry is hitting a major hurdle of resource scarcity, right? So we said, why don't we figure out a new resource that is abundant, that is climate positive, and that outcompetes in price to produce yarns and fabrics from? And that's what we're doing. And parallel to that, our insight to how we were to go about it came from this new industry that I'm completely taken with and I'm completely immersed myself in, in which is the utilizing of, of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. So our today biggest threat to our environment or our existence is global warming. And that comes from simply releasing too much carbon dioxide and, and, a, and a number of different greenhouse gases. And more and more new companies are utilizing this. They're actually sucking it out of greenhouse gas dense areas in the world. Meat farms, uh, exhaust pipes from big factories, landfills, and so on, and have natural processes to turn them into material and use them instead of material that today is produced through the using of oil, uh, plastics, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of amazing companies out in the world that do this. So we jumped on that train and said, what if we do the same thing for textile? And that's what we're doing. And that's what I can say today. And it's very exciting and it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and But it will have fantastic impact. So yes, yes. Good luck with that. Thank uh, you. It will be interesting to follow. Mm -hmm. But let's uh, um, go back to you. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what is your passion? Something that you would you know, not give up on? Mm. So... You actually told me a great story before this podcast about a person that interviewed in Milan, a professor that, that, that gave sort of the, the, the root of passion, the root existence of the word passion, and as something that you would be ready to suffer for. And that really embodied how I feel, right? So there are things that I love to do and that I need to do. I need to spend time in nature, being physically active, whether that's surfing or climbing or you know, snowboarding, but, and that's one thing, but really passion as it pertains to something that is so powerfully present in my body that it just pulls me forward, no matter I, me intellectually wanting it or not. I think that sort of is the reason for everything that I do. And at the end of the day, it is really just creating solutions for all of us to, to actually be able to live on this planet in the long run. Right? and to be able to thrive together. I'm, I'm very, very curious to see what the experience of life together will be if we can stand above and beyond threat and if we can stand above and beyond exclusion of the amount of people that are excluded from, from the daily opportunities that I have, for instance. I'm very driven by and pulled by the idea of just seeing that full human capacity in bloom, right? And, and, and for our children, our grandchildren to not face just a, a substantially tougher times just because that we didn't take action now. 
And I'm curious about building business, and I'm driven by building business that solves those sort of urgent problems that are stopping us right now. Mm. I don't like simple things, right? It doesn't move me. I need the, the sort of the big obvious challenges as a fire under my feet <laughs> yeah. uh, to get going and create solutions. So, so really, I, I think this is, it's even hard to put into language because so much of this is, is on a physical level, it's, it's like on a cellular level. Yeah. I feel like sometimes I'm pulled through my body towards something that I do not know what it is, but it is a place over there in the future where we see less human suffering or no human suffering maybe even. Um, just an inclusion of all people and, and you know, safety in relationship to our environments. This, the social environments that we construct and the environment that is our planet and our ecosystems. So, But what, what turning points in your life have influenced you the most? That is perhaps also the keys to why you're driven mm -hmm. towards this. Mm -hmm. um, Transformative moments. There's a, there are a number of them in my life, but I, I really, I really harness the power from from transformative moments. And when I say transformative moments, I'm, I mean experiences in my life from where there is no turning back. Right? Yeah. So I, I, I have this saying: uh, "Made the bridges that I burn light the way." Many times, if you really want to step up your game in life and just expand the perspective of what's possible you need to burn a few bridges because change, as we've spoken about a bit, mm. the more you change, the more you remain the same. That's, a, that's another saying where it's just easy to sort of stop smoking, start smoking, stop smoking, start smoking. Whilst, you know, many people become marathon runners after they've survived lung cancer. You know, that's, that's sort of a transformative moment. Everything that was before is no longer. So for me, there's been a few big ones. My parents have been huge inspirations in that. When, when I was, my parents started taking care of, of children during summertime from the age of, when I was from the age of six or something. And then when I was 10 and my, my younger sister Josephine was six, our foster siblings, Tony and Jessica arrived. They were the same age, so we just duplicated two children sharing two parents became four children sharing two parents and and that sort of really taught me or sort of even taught me sort of integrated in a deeper sense in my body uh, not only that sharing is caring but sharing is also growth so that was a big transformative moment and i think there's been a number of those through my life at, at, at just after swedish high school i moved to the us and and lived in a snowboard collective and and just um, immersed myself in one of my bigger passions and that gave an even deeper relatedness to to our mountains and our, our our climates and and it also built the foundational team of everything that then became our companies so really getting to know my family in that sense outside of, of my biological family yeah daring to quit my first company was a very transformative moment and the, the just the searching after that is very lost but I expanded and grew a lot out of that. Meeting my wife, she's the most brilliant human being I've ever met and I, I haven't learned, that's the person I've learned the most from in my life. I think a big transformative moment was also when I realized that, hold on a minute, there's this science, and especially environmental science and climate science and so on, is this treasure, is this huge treasure or treasure map 
for how to build the most relevant and exciting solutions and therefore also companies in the world. Mm. And it's just not enough people doing it. I'm going to do it with my partners, but I also want to share this treasure with as many people as possible. Mm. Like this, the, the story from, from a scientific perspective is too poorly told, right? Mm. We need to talk about not our planetary threats or planetary boundaries, but our planetary opportunities. And that insight for me was huge. That was a big sort of turning point as well. Yeah, I, I think coming from both sports, like my whole life has been about sports and especially extreme sports. That together with uh, studying psychology and, and other fields within that spectrum made me sort of get a deeper understanding of how we're wired. And when I was in that space, it was, it was most active between 20 and 25 in both studying psychology and so forth and being in that world of sports, I wasn't, I wasn't mature and wise enough as a human to really be able to, to understand and observe myself and work with that. But now, 10 years later, I've at least started peeking into that world of wisdom and reflection. And to start to be able to use, observe myself and use everything that I do actually know and many other things I didn't know that I do know has been super powerful. It's really stepped me up as a human being in the past two years. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything you're scared of? Yeah, tons of things. <laughs> what? I mean, I can be scared of anything. I have a very wild imagination and, you know, we're still at the core, we're still very much animals, right? I'm not, I'm not different from you. I'm not different from anybody outside this room. Like our fight or flight mode or amygdala is still r running mm -hmm. us wild. You know, if we don't have problems and, and, and risks around us, we create synthetic problems. Therefore, our relationships crash and we get stage fright and all of these things that you know, there's no lion coming, rushing up against us, attacking us, but, but that is the exact feeling and the mm. exact sort of, you know, on a molecular level, how, how our body operates and our mind operates when we're um, standing on stage and are about to, to give a talk in front of a large audience. So the, the, I, have, I, I always have this, this moment before I step on, on stage or to deliver a message to a broader context of people where I feel okay, I'm dying now. This is where I die. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is very similar to, uh, the fear is the same as if I'm on, on a really, really high cliff and I'm about to jump off it into water or if I'm, you know, sp spinning off a jump, a big jump in, in snowboarding. It's the same fear. Whilst doing it the wrong way in snowboarding, I could get paralyzed and doing it the wrong way on a stage, I could get less applause. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> bizarre that that, that happens. So I'm scared of a lot of things. I, I can be very scared of being honest. You know, I can be, I can be scared of, of not being, you know, I think that there's a, a sense in me of not being good enough. Um, but that's a sickness that I guess uh, the whole world has, at least uh, that's what I'm saying. of the world. <laughs> I'm not different. I'm the same. I think that the key is to acknowledge the fact that I'm scared a lot. I'm scared every day mm. for something. Mm. But still you're doing uh, an enormous amount of things that are totally not normal for most people. So it means that somehow I get the... My conclusion would be you, you go to places, you do things that scare you just because they do. 
Uh, so that's the way of confronting it, and that's the way of you know growing, developing. Yeah. I think. I think. Uh, thank you. And yes, I, I think that uh, life isn't about ducking fear, right? It's not about not being scared. It's 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 about what you do with that fear. Right? The road of least resistance is rarely the right road. It doesn't, it doesn't bring you fulfillment. So the more scared I am, the more right it probably is. And then I have to have that conversation with myself and then try to figure out what, what is the safety structures I need to put in place emotionally and mentally. And what is the technology I need to practice, become good enough at something so that I can just mm. override the fear, acknowledge the fear and override the fear. Mm. And then also, you know, I try to, and I, you know, I cave a lot as well. Just we have to be very real with the fact that I, I cave to fear a lot as well. But at the end of the day, I try to think about life this way. If I'm not ready to do the work, how can I ever, ever, ever be expecting it from anybody else? Right? Mm -hmm. I could have, probably by now, I could have a, a really you know, nice position as, as the head of innovation at the major company or, you know, somewhere around there. And I would step into the rat wheel and out to the rat wheel and into the rat wheel and out to the rat wheel or that hamster wheel or whatever it's called and, and have a pretty comfortable situation. But I would only have a comfortable situation if I look at the larger context of external value, like a bigger car or whatnot but within I wouldn't really be happy because I, I understand that I I need autonomy and the community and the belonging to affect where we're going and when I say we it's not me and my wife and my closest family where we are going who I see myself as being in we is the world like mm. I, I fundamentally try to look at myself as a constitutional world if I don't do my utmost for the greater existence of life, then I'm not really doing much for myself either. Right? And that, mm. that is fundamentally how I feel. Mm. And that can feel very overwhelming at times. And it can feel very exciting at other times. I can feel very big and I can feel very small. Mm. And it's just part of it. And um, for businesses uh, or companies, what would you say is, um, to put it simply, well, the long-term formula or solution? I've actually written a whole book about this. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it's not published yet, but it will be within soon. You know, you have to shift your reasoning. And you have to really start looking into why do we exist? And that why cannot be to make more money. Mm. To make more money need to be an effect of why you exist. Mm. And because you do an amazing job providing the reason for your existence. So in this book, The Care Economy, which is really about building an economy based on our deep human nature of being caring social humans, I sketched out a new sort of reasoning model for business where you start in the first layer of reasoning. When you start a business or you reinvent a business and you say, our reason for existence is to be of service to society. Right? Mm. If you start in that reasoning, you're bound to go in a good direction for what's to come. And also, you're bound to have the most excited customers. Mm. 
because you bring value to their lives. Mm -hmm. So if you start with just fundamentally saying our reasoning starts from we're going to be of service to society. Mm -hmm. and, and by all means, this is not new. Many companies throughout existence have started that way. You know, it's like tribal. If you go back to, to tribal, if you go to village mentality or if you go back to hunter gatherer, you know, you were born into a, a tribe where you were like, first and foremost, I'm contribution to this tribe that brings a lot of meaning to my life. It brings a lot of clarity and so forth. And it brings a shared survival and thriving for this tribe. <clears throat> you have to start as, as a company, you have to look at yourself as an entity in the larger tribe of society. So be of service to society. Mm -hmm. From that place, you're reasoning your way up and you say, well, based on that, we should find a really big problem to solve. Because if we manage to solve a big problem for a lot of people, mm -hmm. we really have high social relevance. Based on that, your innovation process kicks in and you build a solution, right? Your product, your mm -hmm. service, whatnot, mm -hmm. you're, you're offering to the world. And based on your geniusness in, in how you build your product and you, you ship it out into the world, you offer it to the world, you make money. Mm. But that's only the fourth quadrant in this. Exactly. And from that place, as I see it at least, you invest in others. Spread your fortunes, invest in others that are also doing amazing things. Mm. Then you build an ecosystem of thriving businesses that you've invested in mm. that are of service to society. Mm. That's the best way for you to make most money was really, really providing a stable platform for your grandchildren. Mm. And, and just that connects with one thing or one model that I see. Just saying, find a big problem to solve. That might end up with, uh, you know, people doing a quick market assessment and then they're saying there's, there's a hole in this market where people just need f an express delivery or pizza, right? Because there might be a certain market for that in the inner city of Stockholm or somewhere. But the reality is that w I see, for instance, what we're doing in Fromair, this new textile company, uh, the world is our potential market, right? And what did we do there? We went to science and said, what are the biggest issues that we need to look at solving? Mm -hmm. Well, we release way too much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere and that really puts us in a dire situation. Okay, let's make sure that there's less greenhouse gases being released into the atmosphere. Mm. How do we build business on that? Mm. And the best way of doing that is going to science, mm. researching in, in, in environmental science and social science and behavioral psychology. What are the untapped potentials? What are the problems that we need to solve? Mm. Use it as a treasure map. Mm. So true. Science is uh, somehow over the last decade has become more like a revived, you know, the king of, of the situation in, in the sense that we're looking for answers. Some answers will never be only rational and scientific, but still uh, we have lots of fuel to get from that world. And uh, the collaboration that is developing recently is, is beautiful to see. Mm -hmm. But if we dream a little bit and say that you have all resources available, what would you then innovate or change, number mm -hmm. one? Mm -hmm. Just one example. I mean, first and foremost, I think that all resources are available. <laughs> I, you know, I might have to do some work to tap into them. But, you know, our issue right now is not that, that there isn't enough resources. We have resources to, we have resources to solve everything. 
We have resources to just bend the climate curve down. We have resources to clean our oceans. We have resources to make sure that uh, poverty is a distant memory. We have resources to make sure that, like, there isn't a single resource scarcity on this planet that is a strong enough reason for why inequity is so present. Why is there still such a vast difference between uh, the value of men and women in, in society? On sliding scales, of course, more in some and, and less in some, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear everywhere. That is nothing about resource, right? So a rewiring of human value is where I would put mm -hmm. my energy. Because that's when we start tapping into human capacity. When, when we just equal the level, the, the, the field of, of human value. That would also remove a lot of the structured conflicts in this world. And I think that right now, as humanity, we spend too much time being angry with each other for reasons we don't actually know. And that holds us away from solving a bigger issue that we also created, which is, which is our ecological on the verge of disaster on a global scale that we, we stand for. So I would really focus on re-educating and rewiring the human culture that we have of inequality and the different differences in views on, on men and women and uh, based on race and, and nationality and and uh, belief as well. So, you know, put resources towards re-education, reimagining therapy, I don't know, mm. everything. Let's throw everything on that fire. Human capacity is insane. It's amazing. And if we could just channel that capacity into just having amazing lives together and solving the issues that we've created. so. Then, then, then so much would probably be so much better. And apart from that, I would just really focus on the most urgent um, ecological issues right now, which is addressing uh, global warming by decreasing and utilizing greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide a lot in all businesses possible, and and on on a uh, on a governmental level as well. Biodiversity loss, big focus. Mm. We really just, we're cleaning out in the worst way possible, right? So we're really, how do we restore our ecosystem? So how do we make sure that our oceans thrive and our forests thrive and, and so forth? Because the ripple effects of, of parts of our, of our natural system starting to die you know, we just have to be frank with the fact that that will generate big parts of the global human population dying as well. So that would be another big one. Yeah. And, and if you would give an advice, piece of advice to yourself, like 10, 15 years ago, what, what would that be? Listen more. I'm a talkative fellow, but at least I'm beginning to actually embrace listening as the best tool of getting anywhere. And I would argue that I, 10, 15 years ago, listened by waiting for my own voice. So really, really listening, deeply listening to other human beings. I would also just sort of, you know, be a bit kinder to yourself. Because if you're a bit kinder to yourself and say, you know what, that was pretty awesome what you just did there. Uh, and even if it wasn't, you're still a great human being, I would definitely also have had 
um, a larger container for being both grateful and being kinder and more loving to the people around me. So that would be another one. And then that's a, a classic one, I guess, but just separate myself and what I'm working on. So at least today I can see that what I take very bloody serious is the mission I'm on. I can be a bit more playful in my view of myself. Back then I would say that I just took everything so very serious that I didn't give myself proper space to breathe. At least now I'm breathing a little bit better. So I think those would be the three. Great yeah. insight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But um, what do you think as a sum up very, you know, uh, in maybe one sentence, what would you say that uh, companies, all companies, all organizations on this planet need the most? To understand their place in society. And, and what do you think the world needs the most at this time? A connection. I know that that sounds like a, 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 you know, a, a cliche, but really understanding that we are heading towards what we've always been, which is one, one global tribe. We might look very different, we might talk very different, we might believe very different. Mm. But the bigger narrative of, of humanity and extended life on this planet is simply one. I'm not saying that we're just one collective mess of energy uh, and, and matter, but what I'm saying is that my actions matter in a larger context. And if everybody looks at it that way, you can start looking at the fact that no chain is stronger than the weakest link, right? So for us to live this many people on this planet in the long run, we really need to start acting like one tribe and, and really think a bit more intentionally about what it is that I'm actually doing. Mm. And if we can just start with on an individual basis, on our family basis or whatever, everybody starts contributing a little bit more mm. to their local community. Everybody starts thinking a little bit more about, instead of just pouring out in rage, maybe I should just consider what it is that I'm scared of or angry about right now. Or whether it's, you know, trimming down meat consumption or whether it's really assessing, am I happy as I go to work? or screw happy do i does it feel meaningful going to work and what is it that i'm actually contributing to when i'm at work if i'm not at peace with what i'm actually contributing to maybe it's high time to question that or find somewhere else to go to work so in that also understanding that we're really really powerful as humanity we're really really powerful You know, you look up and you see governmental structures and, and you know, you see everything from, you know, government being overtaken by Trumpism and that level of politics in the US or like the overpowering state of, in China or like whatever it might be, there's this immensely powerful system. So the economic system, the capitalistic system, it's easy to say, I'm small, right? I don't have impact. So all that I can do on, on, in my daily life is to walk from point A to point B, execute what I've been told, and then move on back to point 
A again. And then there's this circle of not life, but this circle of operations that becomes life. Mm -hmm. And instead say, we are a lot more powerful and we can shape new perspectives and new thinking because out of new perspectives and new thinking comes new behaviors. These streams of new behaviors becomes new systems, right? So mm. everything has been created so far. It's just an effect of a number of people starting to do something, organizing themselves in a certain way, coming up with something and then using it. And then more and more people have jumped on. There isn't a grander plan, you know, there isn't, it's not a universal plan that says this is what humanity is going to look like in uh, 2020. But instead for humans to see that there's this continuous process of, of development all the time. And it's not necessarily needing to be happening to us, but we can take part and shape it. Mm. We just need to sort of, more people need to come together in that insight and say, well, you know what? I think that life would be better this way. What do we need to do to get there? I have to ask you one thing. On your right hand, you have a little tattoo, two words saying, can't stop. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I can't. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, mm -hmm. There won't, won't be a stop. The mission is the meaning, mm -hmm. right? So... Is it also because I'm thinking life in general, there is no beginning or end, right? Everything is transformation somehow. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a fantastically alive, beautiful and important because I make myself important to me at least and to a few other people, effect of my ancestors, of my mom and dad and their parents and their parents and their parents and their, their social context, all the many people that have shaped them, mm. right? I carry all of them within me. I carry our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren's grandchildren within me. So I'm, I'm a mere vessel for a bunch of energy that is then to be transmuted and move on somewhere else mm. as, as my body leaves this life. And I love that fact. I can be scared of death, but because I love life and I don't know anything about death, but yeah, I'm just part of something bigger, right? I'm part of something way bigger. And that is the miracle of life. I'm really grateful <laughs> to be part of, mm. of this amazingness. And I think that for me, can't stop. It's just a reminder on the place where I would scribble reminders before that Life is epic. Don't stop living it and don't stop contributing to it. Contribute to your surrounding. Be part of and be actively engaged with the bigger context of life. Very good advice. So true. That really gives real meaning. How was it to be on the pod? Beautiful. I, I think you ask phenomenal questions and you're also an incredibly wise, uh, knowledgeable human being that it's uh, exciting to talk to. Although I have been ranting here for the past hour, I, 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 you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed the, the questions. Because sometimes I'm asking myself, because we are all, you know, in the hurry, everything needs to be, you know, packaged in a small portions of 20, 30 minutes, whatever people have time to, you know, as, a, as to digest and so on. 
But I feel it's also important to take the moment and, and, and listen to the whole full answer. First and foremost, I don't believe in this short format, right? Mm -hmm. um, people know how to put, push, press and play on their iPhones. I think I am not alone when I say I love in-depth. I really despise when people are cut off in the middle of their reasonings by stressed journalists. Like, I see a huge trend of, you know, longer interviews, longer learning. I think some of the best podcast interviews I've heard have been allowed the space and time that it took. Mm. I was listening just the other day to another podcast where a friend or an acquaintance of mine, Alexander Bard, was interviewed and it just, it just doesn't work to cut that human short. You've got to give that brilliant space. So I really, I really believe in allowing long formats where long formats is due. That is my perspective and that's how I listen. I love to listen to like long pods about history and when I don't do research, I really love hearing about people's stories, mm -hmm. the color of their stories, the, the stories of their life stories, mm. hearing people reason as they speak, mm. right? This was the first time I heard myself recorded post finishing the book. So that's, that's very interesting and I look forward to actually hearing it. Thank you very much, Fredrik. Thank you. What did they say in New York, Frederick? Yeah. Yeah, Frederick. So thank you very much. And uh, also thank you for doing such an impressive work, uh, which is also to the benefit of us all. To find out more about Frederick and his work, you can head to dedicatedinstitute.org and also frederickvikholm.com. And also you can follow him, of course, on Twitter, Vikholm Fredrik. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Bye.